The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. In the next hour, you'll hear from some phenomenal people and healthcare leaders and learn how their challenges became opportunities. Our goal is to show you how you can positively influence your own life experience and purpose and achieve success. And now, here is your host, Danielle Delaney. Hello and welcome to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. And today, my guest, the spotlight shines on, is Sheila Hamilton. She's a five-time Emmy Award winner, and she is the news director and morning show co-host at the top-rated rock station in the country, Kink FM in Portland. She also serves as the public affairs director and hosts an award-winning weekend talk show. Sheila began her career as an associate producer for public broadcasting and spent nearly two decades reporting, anchoring, and producing commercial television for ABC affiliates in Salt Lake City and Portland. She was recently voted Oregon's best radio personality. She writes cover stories for About Face magazine and serves on the boards of Girls, Inc., an organization empowering girls to be strong, smart, and bold, and the Flawless Foundation, a mental health advocacy organization. Sheila, welcome to my show. I'm delighted to have you here today. I am so happy to be joining you and your listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so pleased that you could make it. I mean, you're one of the busiest women alive, it sounds like. And I've been reading your book, All the Things We Never Knew, Chasing the Chaos of Mental Illness. And I actually voted for it as the best new indie book of the year, whatever. I couldn't wait to vote for it. So it's on my Twitter as well. So if listeners would like to go, my Twitter's at It's Danny Delaney so that you can vote for the book. And let me tell you, it's tremendous, and, um, and I love you. Before the break, I, I'll make sure you throw out how to order it, because it really is it's a must-read, I think, for everyone, because it not only covers mental illness and the stigma attached to that, but it talks about your personal story. It reads like a novel. I oh, wow, thank you. I really, yeah, it's really great, and it's also so informative. And there's things I didn't know, and I worked with suicide and rape, hop, rape hotlines for years before... I became a crisis interventionist. Pardon me, crisis intervention counselor and interventionist. So you know, I Daniel, should know all of an, this. An interesting I, aside I to that is that I've heard from so many practitioners who actually deal with people with bipolar disorder and anxiety and depression and a lot of different disorders every day, and they've told me the same thing. And and I think that just speaks to how poorly, especially general practitioners who are being asked to actually give medication to people and give advice to people who are in crisis, it shows how poorly they're trained for the jobs that they have to do. And I spent 10 years researching this book after my husband's death by suicide in 2006. I wrote the memoir portion in a couple of years, but then I wanted to gain some objectivity into what was the mental health field really like for other families and Mm. how common were the kind of mistakes that 
my husband had in his care, and what are some of the more hopeful things that we can do for people in crisis. So I really sandwiched the information about my personal story with all of these very interesting and I think quite hopeful research pieces on mental health today. And that's extremely helpful because when you read it, when I'm reading your book, honestly, the first part is what grabbed me because it's sort of, you know, it's about the the stigma of mental health care. I mean, I'm not a mental health care, but of mental illness, actually. And, and people moving toward care in such a just guarded way. And it right. doesn't need to be this way. And you start off talking about how you missed the unfolding of your husband's illness. And it really is the perfect way to, to, to phrase that because mental illness doesn't just suddenly, oh, they're mentally ill. There is an unfolding of it. And That's I'd like you to talk some more about that, about what sure. you did know, what you didn't know. I'd love to know more about that. That's exactly right. I mean, you phrased that perfectly. It is an unfolding, and and I think that we have this stereotype of people who are mentally ill as homeless people shouting on the streets in ragged clothing. And when I met my husband, he was brilliant. He was running a design-build firm. He was one of the most charismatic and enigmatic people I'd ever met in my life. I was hugely attracted to the energy that he brought, Mm. and... And and the kind of personality that I think anyone would like. He would walk into parties and heads would turn. That's how charismatic his energy was. But over mm-hmm. time, I began to witness these behaviors that were really troubling. Uh, he was having trouble sleeping. He began to get moody and withdrawn. He, he his His patterns and the things that he loved to do began to drop off one by one. And then mm-hmm. he had an affair. And I didn't realize, Danielle, that infidelity is a hallmark of bipolar disorder. It's, it's very common. At least half of people with bipolar disorder uh, present with hypersexuality, and that's definitely what he had. But because mm. my husband was raised in a family where mental illness uh, was very much stigmatized, his, his parents actually didn't believe mental illness exists, that he was, unafraid, he was very oh. afraid to ask for help. He felt very ashamed of what was going on in his brain. He felt like mm-hmm. he was to blame for the cognitive disruption that was happening. Mm. And he pulled himself away from me rather than allow me in to try to help him with the kind of illness. And I, and I often compare it to, can you imagine somebody developing diabetes and instead of saying, please help me, they push you away because they're so ashamed of their condition. Right, and that doesn't happen with anything else. That doesn't happen with physical illness. It's with mental. And with mental, there is such a stigma that people do feel they're going to be judged. They're going to be thrown away. They're going to be discarded. They're going to be right. picked apart and poked at, poked at and picked apart. And really, if they can reach for help, it is so important because it's like any other form of illness. It's just that it happens to be in the mind. And also and it's, it's chemical and some of it isn't. And it's just... It really is It's one of the things I dealt with a lot doing the suicide and rape hotlines is, well, first of all, um, home, rape is the number one cause of homelessness for women. And right, so it's right. not like everyone homeless is not mentally ill. They may be traumatized. They may have had, um, you know, inability to pay their bills anymore because they couldn't go to work. And I'll be talking about that in the show in the future. But it's, it's really interesting to find that, you know, you've had firsthand experience with someone really withdrawing because being withdrawn and infidelity, I actually didn't realize right. that. I actually did not realize that they present in such a way that that's actually a, a red flag and a hallmark. So, yeah. interesting you know, I to want know. to talk about a few, a few of the other 
difficulties of diagnosing bipolar disorder is that my husband had bipolar disorder too, which presents more as a kind of hypomania. He's just below the really, really manic stage. He has excessive energy. He's Mm -hmm. able to complete really complicated tasks, uh, do it in a very short period of time. It's almost like people with that kind of mania operate just at the level a lot of CEOs operate, not needing much sleep, being able to actually work quite well, but then when they drop into depressions, and they often do, they often cycle into depression more rapidly than people with bipolar one. Their depressions are much deeper and much more mm-hmm. difficult to dig out of, and so many mm-hmm. people with bipolar disorder often end up finally going to the doctor only when the depression gets bad enough that they feel like they need help, and that's what happened to my mm-hmm. husband. Is that he ended up asking a family friend who was a physician for help sleeping because he hadn't been sleeping. And it pushed him, the antidepressants pushed him over into his first full-blown mania. And it's very common that this happens for people with bipolar disorder. They look like any other person who might be experiencing depression, and they're given Mm -hmm. the wrong medication, and Mm -hmm. suddenly they're in a mania and a state of akathisia that they can't recover from. Wow. What What would you recommend as far as looking for the correct practitioner you know, I have some certain things I have people do when they're trying to find someone to diagnose them. And as a crisis counselor, I often have people calling in in the, in the heat of crisis. But when I want right. them to have psychiatric care or, you know, I send them to a higher level of care, and I often do that. And I have certain things that I look for. And what would you say would be a sign for a practitioner, for a clinician, for a therapist? To, to realize I shouldn't just be writing scripts for this person. Um, well, I know you've seen some of the hypersexuality. What else? What yeah. else? I think it's very dangerous, Danielle, for general practitioners who have very little training in psychiatry to be yes. giving people SSRIs and antipsychotics. I know that it's I common agree. and that people do it, but they simply don't have the training. I, I talked to one family physician who just said, I'm wholly unequipped to deal in this level, and now that we know the counteractions of these medications, we really do need to go back for more training on them. Um, Uh Apart from getting a true psychiatric analysis where they will give you the mood disorder questionnaire so that they can go back through your past to actually see when you might have been operating at a hypomanic level versus a depressive level, short of that... I would say that you've really got to go to the emergency room and get into a psychiatric ward to demand the kind of care that we need. If we were having a heart attack, we would not accept anything except a skilled cardiac surgeon. And it's beyond me why, when we're in the state of mental crisis that so many Americans are, we go mm-hmm. to a, to an urgent care center and expect a nurse practitioner or a doctor to be able to write out a medication for something that's very complicated. Extremely complicated, extremely complicated. And you know what else I find, Sheila, is that there are certain clients that I've had who are under a a psychiatrist's care and they're taking certain antidepressants or certain things that they've been told they need for a chemical imbalance. But what doesn't happen, I always call it, um, you know, me to medicate and move them on is what happens quite a bit. Not to blame psychiatrists. I love my psychiatrists. They're wonderful. but. There are some that are really meeting people, medicating them, and moving them on, and they're not even telling them. I end up telling them, oh, you've been drinking grapefruit juice? Well, that's blocking the absorption of your antidepressant. 
And they didn't even know that. And they haven't been told anything. And they also don't realize for those that will not refrain from drinking, which of course I encourage everyone to, but they will not, some will not refrain from drinking, that one drink is like two, two drinks is like four, four drinks right. is like eight. It's double the effect when they're on antidepressants and a lot of these other medications that are prescribed to them. So they're also being given out not only do I feel like they're too loosely prescribed for some, some who need and some who do not, but they're not even giving the, the proper instruction of these small things like grapefruit juice or alcohol. How about no? And they're not right. being told until they get to me, and I don't understand that often, but it's so common. It's so common. Well, and, and it's also, I think, Danielle, you make such good points. It's also so important for the family members of a loved one who's in crisis to make sure that they actually have a physician who's going to follow up. Within yes. two days of taking antidepressants, my husband was leaning against this big kitchen marble cabinet that he created and looking out at a garden that he used to tend that was all full of weeds. And he said, just as, as boringly as if I'm going to get the paper, he said, I'm having voices telling me to jump off a bridge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, his doctor hadn't said, why don't you call me and tell me if you have any uh, suicidal thoughts. His doctor hadn't given him any warning that he could actually spin into mania. And I really believe part of what we must demand from the mental health care system is a system of checks and balances and follow-ups so that once yes. patients are actually sent home with this medication, their doctors know how they're doing on them. Yes. And it's, it's really important also, I think, for clinicians and practitioners. I have to put people under, you know, um, 72-hour hold sometimes, of course, they're angry with me, but if I'm getting calls and texts that are extremely disturbing, I'm legally mandated to do so, and it's That's kind of, right. I call it Benson and Stabler effect. I'm out to dinner, and I feel like a cop. I have to go. I get a call. I get a text. I have to go. I have to act. I actually legally have to act, and a lot of people right. that are in this field are either tired of it, or they don't, they're not understanding the gravity of it, so I think it's really important to make sure you don't have someone on deck that's in it for money or that have a life that is not, I and mean, you can't be a crisis interventionist or a counselor or therapist if you can't be on deck when it's absolutely necessary. And I've seen it if they really don't like this field and it doesn't matter. Yeah, wow, great point. I just want to take a minute just to provide the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, because I know so many people are probably thinking about this topic now, and it's important that we provide resources as we continue the discussion. It's 1-800-273-8255, and I'd like to give that number as often as we can, because 43,000 Americans died by suicide last year, Danielle, and for every one suicide, there's 25 attempts. And so, so there is more than a million people that are dying by or attempting suicide every year. And I find it to be the unspoken public health crisis. And, and I'm just wondering what kind of response we would have as Americans if 43,000 people were dying of Zika virus. We would be on it. We would be talking about prevention. We would be talking about what we can do to get better care. And I find the lack of action around suicide in our country completely appalling. Well, thank you for throwing out those statistics there because some of them are just so staggering that if people aren't aware, they don't realize how much action really does need to be taken. I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you say is the best suicide prevention? I mean, I'd like to talk to you about your personal story, but what would you say, if in a sentence or two, what would you say is the best suicide prevention possible that we know of right now? 
I think it's the exact opposite of how we handle suicide today, which is we hmm. pretend it's a secret. We stigmatize those who have had suicidal thoughts and who have attempted. We make it shameful when we hear of a suicide in our communities. We tend not to talk about the beauty of that person's life or the way in which they lived. We focus solely on the means with which they died. And I, I really would like to see us change our attitudes about suicide, to have suicide prevention from the time our kids are in grade school mm-hmm. so that they understand suicidal thoughts are as a result of having a mental illness that's not being treated properly. And if mm-hmm. we could begin saying it's the same effect as having cancer that goes untreated, eventually things start to go really wrong with your organs. We need to be talking about it as a medical continuum. And I would really like to see the education for suicide prevention begin early to let people know there are things that you can do if you begin having these thoughts and feelings. There are wonderful therapies that can help you deal with ideation. There's good medicine if it's it's, uh, prescribed properly. There are all kinds of people who want to help you through these kind of thoughts and behaviors. And I know so many survivor survivors who who made Mm -hmm. it and then went to live to tell their stories who will say, we don't really want to die. We just want to be out of the kind of pain, the psychic pain that these deep lasting anxieties and depression cause us. So a a more deeper understanding of it would be really, really helpful. I think it would be a really great thing to have a movement toward this hopefulness and toward this kind of thinking, this forward thinking about suicide and and, and removing the stigma around suicidality and suicidal ideation by starting in the, in the, in the elementary schools, really, because yeah. just like they have programs about bullying, which, of course, I think there need to be more of as well, but, uh, you know, these kids that are having these issues, if they feel they can't speak to a parent or a counselor or the nurse or their teacher or anybody, um, that really does kind of tie their hands, so to speak, so that they really feel that they are hands are tied and they have no one to talk to and that no one will listen to this without judging them or maybe suspending them or some kind of disciplinary action, and they need to be told. I think there should be assemblies. I think there should be, just like anything else, when they call awareness to it in school, they could do that more than once or twice a year to make sure, and they could be saving people. And it's so important, I think, exactly what you said, just um, a a different way of looking at it, a hopefulness. Yeah. Well, well, I do know this, that... For every one person who dies by suicide, we're saving 278 lives. So that's an important number to put in perspective, that those people are getting the help they need. They're Good. finding ways to live. They're, they're learning coping mechanisms. They're getting the right medication. They're getting the right support. And we need to focus on those and teach people these kind of coping methods early so that when they begin to have these feelings, they don't feel so shamed and alone. Very important, very important, and a, and a trauma-informed method of care, this, that sort of methodology really helps as well. I know I have clients that will come to me talking about things that happen to them. It doesn't have to be molestation. It doesn't have to be abuse. It doesn't have to be rape. It doesn't have to be, um, it, it doesn't have to be things that I find traumatic or you find traumatic. It's whatever they found traumatic, and being informed there really works. And being told what's going on, but they need to be encouraged to be open and encouraged yeah. to speak their truth and talk about everything. And it's just you know, hiding. Danielle, I've, I have talked to so many people who attempted suicide that said their lives were only turned around when they found a physician who stopped saying, what's wrong with you? 
and started asking what happened to you. It's a very different framing because it allows a person to actually talk about the traumas that really do change brain-based behavior and and make them oftentimes have the kind of self-stigmatizing that's really horrible if you're if you're suffering from a mental illness. So this trauma-informed mm-hmm. care approach holds this person in a place of respect and dignity to say, let's figure out a way to deal with some of the thoughts and behaviors you're having about what happened to you. Let's solve that right. first. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's really important what you just said, Sheila, as well as I'll give an example because some people aren't even aware of how much trauma that they've had loaded onto them because it's been minimized by other people in their family, other people in their life, or even by, by themselves personally. I used to do, before I owned my sober companioning company, which I send people over the world to help people with their sobriety after they've stayed at inpatient facilities or with any other co-occurring disorders that go along with that. And uh, I had a client when I used to do it myself who happened to mention me over, to me over dinner after being there for about a week. She said something about the time someone set her hair on fire when she was 12. Oh, my God. Exactly. Whoa. And that's what I said. I said, what? When did this happen? Let's talk about this. She'd never even spoken about it in therapy. And if I hadn't been staying with her and with her family for weeks, it just wouldn't have come up because she wow. did not really acknowledge how traumatic that event was in her life. And it sort of informed a lot of other things that went on in her life and in the future. And it, it made perfect sense to me that she hadn't really acknowledged it as a traumatic, traumatic event. She was bullied wow. and went through a lot of trauma very young that led her to feel certain ways about herself and to deaden herself with alcohol and to use other substances and to have issues. And people need to feel uh, you know, that there's an ability to talk about what's going on, exactly what you said, not what's wrong, but let's talk about what happened to you. And right. it takes a while to regress and go into what happened before you can actually address it. And it's right. not a quick fix. It really needs to be looked at just like going to any other wellness checkup. You just continue to work on your wellness and continue to exercise that muscle just like doing the elliptical every day or lifting that arm weight. It's not going to turn into a muscle if you don't continue to use it. So it's, it's really important that people do get that care and treatment, but when they're in that treatment to talk about things that just sort of a stream of consciousness, that's when it comes up. That's right. when it comes up and when we can start to address it. Wow, that's really helpful to think about because... Hadn't thought about that instance in a while, and that made a big difference in her life. Wow, I can't imagine. It's very dramatic. Wow. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more, if you would, about your your story. What happened in your life, so that we can have some people listening across the country who can relate to what happened to your husband and with you and your husband. Well, because we were married for a period of ten years, and I actually didn't realize until quite late in the marriage that I was actually dealing with a mental illness with a person with mental illness. I just thought that he was being selfish and that he was moody. And because he was very, very brilliant, I expected that there was some kind of withdrawing mechanism that he did to try to save his energy for when he was very creative and and up. It was only Mm -hmm. when his father died, his business was in real trouble because his cognitive disruption was so intense. And I found out about yet another affair and began to make plans to separate him from him that he actually uh, took those uh, antidepressants, went into akathisia, had two suicide attempts, Mm -hmm. and in the hospital he was simply re-traumatized. 
he was put in a an almost like a prison system with no no windows. Nurses work behind bulletproof glass. He he saw a doctor just once a day for a med check for 15 minutes. People didn't know his name. The doctors there were paid for bringing patients through the door. Didn't matter what wow. the outcomes were. There was uh, absolutely nothing for this brilliant man to do who'd previously been running a business. And when he asked what he could do, he was told he could color. And he was shown, shown broken crowns. Uh, he ended up reading the DSM when he was there and understanding that it definitely was bipolar disorder and having a view of his life that was as his psychiatrist described it. He would always be disabled. He would never be able to run his business again. His illness would likely get worse. Mm. He would likely be one of the one in four people who died by suicide and that this was a lifelong disorder that grew worse as you got older. And I think that that information, coupled with how severe the illness was by the time he checked himself in, made Mm -hmm. him so hopeless that the day after he was released, he drove to the Columbia Gorge in Portland and died by suicide. And I think about all the missteps in care, and I wish I could say that this was just happening 10 years ago, but sadly, I just had a friend who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder two weeks ago. And he was told by a psychiatrist the very same thing. This is a lifelong disability. You will not recover. You will need to be on medications the rest of your life. There is a high suicide rate. You could be one of them. It's very, very depressing for people to not be Extremely. When, in fact, I know so many people who have bipolar disorder, who manage it beautifully with a small dose of medication, Mindfulness, mm-hmm. exercise, good nutrition, dialectical behavioral therapy or cognitive therapy, great relationships and community support, faith and sleep, and they're fine. They're better than it's, fine. It's, they're there's great. So many that live that way. It's living with it and treated. It's absolutely livable and absolutely not a hopeless situation. We're going to go to break for just a moment, but before we do, I'd love it if you would give out the suicide hotline once again, and then we'll come back and talk some more. Sure. We're talking today about the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Thank you, Sheila. And we're going to take a a brief little break, and we'll come back and speak with Sheila some more about this. Thank you. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com We go through all kinds of challenges in life. How we deal with them is a different story. If we carry them on our shoulders, we can experience health problems, relationship issues, and other negative aspects these challenges can pose. Jeanette Abney's Precious Predicaments is here to help you pick up and sort out the pieces through education and encouragement. You don't have to live in fear and pain. Let's find solutions together. Precious Predicaments is heard live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. 
Are you ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the Internet Talk Radio Airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. If you'd like to connect with Danielle, feel free to send an email to therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. That's therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. This is Danielle Delaney, and this is The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney, which airs every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And I am here with Sheila Hamilton. And Sheila, uh, we, I'd love you to continue talking about your personal experience with this. But if you could also give out your web address and how can listeners get your book? Yes. Okay. Well, my book is called All the Things We Never Knew, Chasing the Chaos of Mental Illness. It's available at most bookstores, but Amazon is very good about overnighting it too. So if you want to do that, I also read the audio book in my voice, so that's available as well if you prefer mm-hmm. to listen by audio book. I have a uh, website where I report on mental health and interview a lot of the change makers in the mental health industry, a lot of survivors and people who are very interested in preventing more suicides, and that's at SheilaHamilton.com. And then I'm on Facebook at Sheila Hamilton Portland and Twitter at Sheila Hamilton, Instagram Sheila Hamilton, and Snapchat at Sheila Hamilton. So I would love to have you follow me and support the book. It is up for the National Book Award for the Indie Book of the Year. So that would be really wonderful if people could support the book. I appreciate it so much. Oh, gosh, I hope so. And they can also, uh, the link for supporting your book and voting for it also is at my Twitter, which is at itsdannydelaney at gmail.com. I'm sorry, no, at itsdannydelaney. This at itsdannydelaney's Twitter. But to reach me by email, it's uh, the real deal with Danielle at gmail.com. So those are two ways of reaching me. And then Instagram also is uh, Danny Delaney, D-A-N-I-D-E-L-A-N-E-Y. And my counseling website for anyone who would like to come forward and chat about anything going on with them emotionally and talk with me about that. I'm happy to do so. Um, you, can, you can go to DanielleDelaneyCounseling.com. So thank you for giving that information, Sheila. And let's talk some more about what your personal experience was here. I, I really was touched by that. And I did get to meet your daughter, which was wonderful when we went to mm-hmm. a, I heard you speak and really wanted you for my show. And I'm delighted to be asked to do yours too. So I'm so I'm happy to be so- here too. Oh, my daughter so was nine. amazing. Yeah, she was nine when her dad by, died by suicide. And one of the biggest heartbreaks for us was even as sick as he'd become in the mm-hmm. hospital, he would try so hard to hold it together for our daughter, Sophie, because Mm. he loved her so much. And I think that one of the hardest things that he heard was the suggestion that perhaps he wasn't going to be fit to actually parent her. And so, as I said before, Mm. after he was released from psychiatric care, he drove to the Columbia Gorge and died by suicide. And for me, I 
I needed a period of grief and understanding and, and trying to give myself a context for the trauma I just suffered as well. Because the mm-hmm. man that I had married was not a person with mental illness. The man I married was brilliant and charismatic and six foot four and gorgeous and one of those perfect catches for you when you're in your late twenties and early thirties. And <laughs> to see him at the end, how much mental illness had changed him really rocked my world. So for almost two years, I wrote the memoir of our story, our love story together, because I wanted so desperately to frame his life in love. And I would type and lie on the floor, sob with my big yellow lab, and look at this stand of trees that were also battered and broken that winter. It was a huge ice storm in Portland, and many Mm. of the trees outside my home were broken and lost from the storm. And I just imagined myself that year going dormant to the outside world to try to recover and to learn as much as I could about healing and I read poets and the ancients as to what they did in terms of of great grief. And through that reading and the process of writing, I really found my own way to heal. I was in a place where my husband had left us hundreds and thousands of dollars in debt because his business that was apart from my own business was failing. And he had been taking out loans and refusing to bill his clients because he believed he was unworthy of payment. And so I ended up Mm. having to pay off his debt in that year. Um, I had to move my daughter from the home in which we loved that she grew up in and and try to find a context for us to go on. And what I chose to do, and I think this is probably going to be really important for anybody who's lost someone, to suicide as I moved through the stages of grief, of denial and anger and bargaining, and I still couldn't come to a place where I felt whole. And I realized, Danielle, that I needed to add a sixth stage to that, and that was forgiving David. I Mm. needed to forgive him for the futility that he felt against this illness that just ravaged his mind and forgive him for the choice he made to end his pain. And the moment that I forgave him, I forgave myself. And that's when the real healing began, which was now we understand one another. It was Mm -hmm. a beautiful moment that we all do the best we can in this world. And he he had tried very hard to cope in his own way with diagnosis of this mental illness, and so had I. And that was the best that we could do with the information that we had at that time. That's all you had. That's all you had at that time. And I see, you know, I listened to Sophie speak, your daughter, who is 18 and more poised than some 40-year-olds I've ever encountered. (laughs) She really is just, I mean, I, I'm sure she got it from both of her parents, but it really is just, it's amazing to watch. And I love that she has made this such a powerful part of her life and that she's moving forward in such a powerful, hopeful way as do you. And I'm wondering, do you have any sort of rituals or anything that you do to sort of celebrate his life or to celebrate the survivors? Or what, what do you suggest that people do that are listening who have lost loved ones to suicide, which so many have? I know I've had loved ones who've, who've um, attempted suicide, and right. I think, you know, hopefully they realize the carnage that it leaves behind. It truly does, and it's truly, you know, twisted wreckage for the rest of us left behind when we love someone who's just gone now with no answers, and we don't understand it. But to forgive, I think, is divine and is a beautiful thing. And also, 
Well, is there something that you do with, as a family in order yeah, to... Yeah, well, I, I made the decision very early uh, that I was going to tell Sophie the truth because I just mm-hmm. read too much about the deleterious effects of lying to a child. Um, if you think they're not capable of hearing it at nine, what makes them more capable of hearing the truth at 11 or 12 or 13? Mm-hmm. There's never a mm-hmm. time when the news gets any better. And the fact that you, that you don't tell them the truth from the beginning puts up a lot of magical thinking in their head about what happened and how it happened. I simply mm-hmm. told her, I simply told her that daddy had died. We were lucky that she'd visited him enough in the psychiatric hospital to actually see that he was physically and emotionally and spiritually sick. And so it made more sense to her that he had Mm -hmm. died from a mental illness because she saw his decline. And then when when he died, I wanted her very much to be a part of the planning of the funeral to remember her dad and the light and the, and the beauty that he had before he was sick. And we celebrate his birthday. We light a candle for him at Christmas. We make sure to keep in touch with his family. We do an awful lot to make sure that his memory stays alive. And, and, you know, on her bedside stand, there is a photo of me and her dad and her stepdad. And so she's whole. That's beautiful. She's whole. Yeah. That's beautiful because it's her history and for her not to feel shame or blame or any of that and be able to walk through this world the way she does powerfully and speaking about it openly is exactly the kind of leaders that we need to be able to remove that stigma and to be able to to sort of carry people through this process and your experience, not only your book, but your experience when you speak about it publicly, every time she speaks about it publicly, things she's developing around this issue, it is really just something to be so... I just, I'm, I'm so impressed by her, and I'm so impressed by the way you've handled your loss. And I've never really gotten a chance to say to you, I am so sorry for your loss. And oh, I'm thank so, you, Danielle. You're welcome. And I'm just, I'm so, so, it just gives me hope to watch the, the things that you've encountered and overcome. I've obviously had to overcome certain traumas of my own, but that's a whole other issue. And it's just the idea of having hope. It's similar that a lot of people with PTSD, rape trauma, rape crisis, rape trauma syndrome, which is RTS is different than PTSD. And a lot of people don't recognize that. And to think, oh, this is forever. I'll always be triggered by this. I'll always have this. And I tell them similarly, celebrate uh, obviously, you don't want to celebrate what happened to you, but I, I call mine my rape anniversary, and I have two of them, and I celebrate now. It's been, it took me almost a decade to do so, but how long can I carry this heavy, heavy, this heavy weight of something that I didn't ask for, didn't cause, and have no blame for? And it's just, it, it just creates this victimhood of, of, in people to have to feel terribly on these days and to feel depressed on those days, which of course you do. You have sadness. You can't control that all the time. But there are things to celebrate as well, such as the victory of coming through something with hope instead of defeat and hope instead of feeling beaten down and, and to celebrate. I actually celebrate the person that I was before I became the person that I am through what came through what happened to me. And I think you and Sophie are entirely different than you would be had this not happened in your lives, but not worse, just different. And different well, I, I completely agree. Us and shape I, us. 
Sophie went on to um, to to almost change her entire gearing of the world in that she understood the fragility of life very early yeah. on, and she yeah. got very serious about wanting to make a mark on the world that was compassionate and kind and changed it for the better. And she's now at Stanford, and her her whole gearing is how do we develop te- technologies and science that actually improve our society? Mm-hmm. And how how can I, as a person who lived with trauma, stand as a beacon for other people to say it it changes you, but it also makes you a stronger person for having learned the resilience to move forward. And, you know, there's lots and lots of brain imaging work that's now been done on survivors mm-hmm. of uh, trauma from everything from being a prisoner of war to rape to those, and their brains are actually more active in more parts of the hemisphere because of how much you have to work with your brain to be resilient, to get up and go on, to find meaning for living. You develop uh, a new plasticity in your brain that you didn't have previously. And so I don't think we ever want to say that my husband dying gave us a gift, but it certainly gave us an awareness of what we needed to change our lives to make them more serious, more joyful, more more uh, grateful for the life that we were given, and it's done all that. It has done all that, and I see that in her, and I see that with you. And it's just, it just it can be an, an additional purpose. I always say we integrate we integrate it into who we are. It never goes away. You just integrate it into who you are, but it's not just doing it. It's, a, it's quite a process. But it really does, um, it's not something you can never just get over. You go through to get to the other side. And people trying to get over that self-medicating, it's so many other issues and problems that can develop. Instead of going through your problems, I remember realizing I was depressed and I was given antidepressants and I don't like them. And I finally thought, shouldn't I be depressed after what happened to me? Shouldn't I feel my actual feelings? And perhaps through feeling my feelings, I can figure out what I want to do with them which yeah. was I was not happy with the care. I did go to therapists. I was not happy with talking about sex life rather than rape. And I did go to support groups that were at night and were frightening in the middle of downtown L.A. with right. sports mascots and costumes walking around. And we're all scared and talking about our dramas and kidnaps and rapes. It doesn't make sense. And I thought I could do this differently, maybe not better, but differently. And I wanted to get into that field. And it does. everyone doesn't have to do that, but it can definitely give you direction as to how to integrate this into how you are and how to how to deal with the triggers and deal with the anniversaries and deal with these dates. And there's, they're manageable. It isn't a hopeless situation. And there, I think people coming through this, survivors of suicide and listening to a panel of you speak really was just so helpful for me to watch because you're not my clients, you're not my patients. And just to hear this resilience and this strength and realize that it's 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 not uncommon. It can it can be that it's reachable. It's an attainable, reachable goal. Goal, and um, I think that this is such a helpful book and such a helpful conversation because we need to change the conversation. It needs. Oh, to be thank changed. you. I, I want yeah, to yeah, say absolutely. one of the one of the things that happened for me, Danielle, was when David was was getting sicker, I went to my local bookstore to try to find a book that was written for caregivers of people with mental illness because we are the people responsible for the bulk of their care. We're responsible for getting them to their appointments. We're responsible when they tell us to F off, you know, because the the behaviors can be very difficult Mm -hmm. to deal with. 
And there are very few books written for caregivers. There are lots and lots written by psychiatrists for people with mental illness, for, you know, for uh, the, the person who wants to actually become a therapist. There's a lot of different titles. There's very few written for us. And I wanted to provide a book. I, you know, Toni Morrison said, if there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, you must write it. And that's really what okay. I did was to say, let's actually provide a story and a context for how we can go forward. The people who love people with mental illness, what can we do to help one another? And I just want to give a shout-out to NAMI in Los Angeles. Westside NAMI was very helpful for us that evening, but in almost every community in America, there's a National Alliance of Mental Illness that is there to help the family members. So... If you are struggling and you're in crisis because of taking care of someone with a mental illness, mm-hmm. it's great to it's great to reach out. Absolutely, absolutely. People don't realize that they're not alone. They feel alone, but they are not alone. It often feels so bleak, but there are other people that can help you and lift you up and give you support. So I think Nami is wonderful. I think calling again, I just I can't give it out enough. The the National Suicide Hotline, 1-800-Suicide-Prevention Hotline, I should say, 1-800-273-8255. And um, I, I think just being informed and, and also just realizing that you're not by yourself. You're not alone. There are so many, so many outlets to reach out and ask for help, ask for extra care. And then caregivers, too, as well. Exactly. It's something that we deal with as uh, first responders. It's called compassion fatigue and we suffer compassion fatigue when we're caring for someone else who has an illness and you know as a as a counselor and as a therapist people people have this because all day long obviously we're taking this in but it is a choice and we learn to shield ourselves I know how to do so many different things in order to protect myself from everyone else's energy but to still be present for them and I think it's really important for people to realize compassion fatigue is a very real thing but we can take care of ourselves. There are so many ways to do so. And um, I think that you giving that shout-out is so important. And I'd really like to talk to you some more about something we touched upon when we were speaking privately, is about the national coming-out party for people who've lived this with <laughs> experience and being a beacon uh, of hope. If you could talk about that a little bit more, because I think something like that would honestly sure. I mean, I, more I, of I that, wish, more I of that hope that's so desperately needed. I wish that we could take a cue from the LGBT uh, community how much more research dollars they were able to garner, how much more public interest, how much easier it was for people to accept that gay men and women were living in their ranks once they started coming out of the closet. And, mm-hmm. and that is, for me, the the parallel is there are lots of people living with mental illness. One in five has a serious yes. mental illness, and you don't know them because they go to work and they're in your church and they're coaching your kids basketball and they're doing just fine. And I really wish that we could have more of the stories of these people who are managing their illness as well so that we could erase the stigma of those when they're in crisis, in psychosis, actually being the definition of what mental illness looks like. Mental illness is the guy in your building and you've talked to him every day at lunch and you have no idea. And, you know, exactly. that's been a wonderful thing for me, Danielle, as part of my, my effort at SheilaHamilton.com is to get especially people in power 
to talk about this, and we we formed one of the most progressive anti-stigma campaigns in the nation called Keep Oregon Well, where we partner with rock bands and with artists who are willing to talk about how they cope. Because it's very, very common in the creative community to have some form of yes. anxiety or depression and and what they do to actually deal with those illnesses, whether it's through music and art and creativity or making sure that they're exercising or making sure they're sleeping. And we're just normalizing the conversation. It's what we yes. must do for us all to recognize that mental illness is just our is is our mental wellness is just our wellness, right? And we're all mm-hmm. along the continuum of care. Where if we don't take care of ourselves and recognize our own vulnerabilities, especially genetic predispositions, we can be pushed over into illness. Absolutely. Would you mention again the name of, of what that organization is? Yes. Uh, it's called Hashtag Keep Oregon Well, and it is our anti-stigma campaign. You can find it on Twitter. You can find it at my website. Or you can just okay. Google Keep Oregon Well and you can find out all the information about that campaign. I think that's fantastic. And it's everything helps. Everything helps. I wish that we could have a parade. And I hope that one day we do. And I hope yeah. that there's, there's, it, there's so much meaning to resilience and so much meaning behind trauma and so much power to be have behind that. I just... I always felt like I can't let them win I, if I just throw my life away because I'm miserable waking up and being me again every day because I do remember feeling suicidal and I do remember feeling, oh, I'm me again. I'm waking up. I'm Danielle again. Another day. Are you kidding? I have to mm. be me again. I did not want to get up and brush my teeth. I did not want to go to PTSD counseling. I did not want to sit around with a bunch of rape survivors or rape victims, whichever they preferred, and talk mm. about my story again and these therapists with this narrative of, you can write a new story. I just, I found it absolutely infuriating. And then mm-hmm. finally I found the right one, but it was my full-time job, my full-time job 24 seven. And I have no shame around, around being traumatized and having PTSD and all of it, because I think it helps other people to see that you can live powerfully, live well, and, and live a healthy life while still having triggers and while still having things that, that will remind you or take you back exactly to that moment where you feel it. But it's just living with meaning and giving it meaning. It doesn't have any less meaning than anything positive, like a birthday. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just really a way of looking at things. And I think uh, the holistic approach is really helpful. That's what I use in my counseling practice. And that basically is the whole person and just treating every part of the person, not just this issue, not just their trauma, and making sure that they're concentrating on their wellness as a whole. And it doesn't have to just be this Western medicine approach. I'm very happy to marry Eastern and Western. And um, I just think what you're doing is fantastic and helpful. And the support that's necessary that you're speaking of, it's really great for people to hear where they can get that. Yeah, Your personal story is so powerful, Danielle, and I. I'm so grateful for you and your willingness to share it with your listeners. I I know you've probably had the same experience I have, which was the moment I opened up as a public figure in Portland, Oregon. I have Mm -hmm. had so many people tell me about secrets and family secrets and experiences they've never spoken of before. And Mm -hmm. I just think if everyone in this country who was dealing with a mental illness, either well or not so well, talked more openly about it, you'd find this 
army, legions of people yeah. who are willing to help give advice and willing to support you in your journey. So I think it's really the first step and the most important step we can make. I agree with you. I think every time we whisper, we lose. And every time we shout from the rooftops, we win. And I couldn't yeah. allow them to win and steal my life, which is what they tried to do. And I thought, I can't allow that. And I think it's not so much having a winner attitude, it's just having a, a, a hopeful attitude. And fortunately, I had my mother and my father and my siblings who were really, you know, a huge support. Some people don't have that. So I think it is really great that we're able to give them the kind of support that they need. And just that there is no stigma. I have no embarrassment or shame really about anything I've done, which is you know, often to the horror of my parents, <laughs> but, um, but I just <laughs> that I've ever done is made me who I am, and I'm happy to talk about all of it, and it, and it informs my practice. You know, it, it leads me to understand, I understand a lot of things about people who otherwise feel misunderstood and that they have no one to talk to, and there's just no reason to hide. It, it's Every time we whisper, I think we're losing a battle, and I think no we need to really it. stop the whispering and, and, and shout and, and have a strong voice about what we can do and about what we've survived because it's to be applauded, not as a self-patting, you know, not patting ourselves on the back, but inviting other people to please also join the conversation. So I really do invite people to, and please do reach out to me if you'd like to at uh, therealdeal at gmail.com. I'm sorry, therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com. I'm still kind of new and I forget these things. Therealdealwithdanielle at gmail.com and SheilaHamilton.com. And I just, I thank you so much for being here today, Sheila. Oh, it's been a really wonderful conversation, Danielle. Thank you so much. Anytime. And I'd actually like to have you on again, maybe toward the end of the year and, and discuss some of the changes and, and things that have come from your work and from talking about having sort of a national coming out party for survivors and making sure that people feel open and supported to talk about this very, very important topic. So um, in closing, if there's any information you'd like to give, I would certainly like you to give it before I'm in the show for the day. I just, I, I just encourage you, if you, if you don't have um, the funds to be able to purchase the book, All the Things You Never Knew, it's now in 380 libraries across the across uh, the country, and I know that it's a, it's a very popular book in libraries because that's the first place people go when they're trying to find information about how to help their loved ones. So check out all the things you never knew there. And, and I also am speaking a lot about this um, in different places. I have decided that it's part of my mission is to continue to talk about it just in the memory of my late husband and because I want my daughter to see that out of this really tremendous sorrow that we suffered, I think it's so important to go forward with your dignity and your enthusiasm for life. I really wanted to be the antidote to David's shame and the silence that he endured because of his stillness. So I'm speaking about it, and I'd be happy to speak to your organization. Fantastic. Thank you again, Sheila. And please yes. join us next week, 2 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. Take care and be well. Thanks for joining us this week. Be sure to catch The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney live every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We can't wait for you to see what's in store next week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.